True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and today I have a fascinating interview for you. Before I get into it, I'd like to thank our new Patreons for the week. A huge thanks goes to Fuzan Zia, James Stott, Gabriella Amos, Craig Miller, Janine, and Vanna for their support on Patreon, as well as Rachel Robertson for her support through PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. I really am very grateful for all of the support. And don't forget that Patreon supporters will be receiving their very first Patreon-exclusive episode this month. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to helping the show to keep growing and improving. The subject of mental health seems to be intertwined with true crime stories, And I sometimes think that it's for all the wrong reasons. I've always wanted to better understand the human mind, and I think that's the case for many of True Crime South Africa's listeners as well. In covering some of the stories that I have, I've come to wonder if the portrayal of mental illness as somehow being inextricably linked to shocking crimes doesn't just do more harm than good. When we hear about some of these brutal cases, we immediately think that there must be something seriously wrong with the perpetrator. And then, we somehow link that to mental illness, when, in most cases, that couldn't be further from the truth. They must be mad, we say, shaking our heads, doing our best to convince ourselves that whatever caused the incident in question is not something that could ever find its way into our lives. And there's that word, mad. It's a word that's bandied about and used in so many different contexts that it's almost lost its meaning, but it hasn't lost its stigma. We've come a long way in the world of mental health in the last few decades. Mental illnesses like depression and anxiety disorders are now far more openly discussed than ever before. The stigma around depression and anxiety disorders is shifting, but the more severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia and the bipolar disorders are still so misunderstood. As someone who wishes that all of the stigma around mental illness would just implode, I've always found the word mad or madness deeply offensive and derogatory. And then I read a book called Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope by Sean Bauman. And my entire concept of that word and everything that it represents shifted. Sean Bauman worked for 25 years as a consultant to the male acute service at Falkenberg Hospital in Cape Town and was a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry and Mental Health at UCT. 
He currently holds an honorary position in the department. He obtained degrees in the arts and in medicine and qualified as a specialist psychiatrist in London, UK. His areas of interest are psychotic illnesses, specifically the schizophrenia spectrum disorders and chronic pain. His book was recently published by Jonathan Bull Publishers, and it is a must-read. The book details his experiences in the field of psychiatry and his work at Falkenberg, and he pulls back the heavy curtain that so often shrouds mental illness and bears it all for the world to see. His empathy for his patients and their families is clear. Sean chose to work at Falkenberg in public service because he wanted to make a real difference, and that is what he hopes to do with this book too. You may recall a few weeks back on social media, I gave you a scenario about asking one question to a psychiatrist. Well, you may want to listen out during the interview to hear if your question is asked. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Bauman about the release of his book. Let's get into the interview. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Dr. Bauman, thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me today. I really do appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I think it's a very important, necessary and valuable insight into the life of people living with mental illness. I think that people who don't have experience with mental health issues, either in themselves or someone they love, often have no clue what people go through. And I really think that your book brought that reality forward. As you have just indicated, that one of the motivating factors for writing this book is to try and dispel some of the misconceptions regarding mental illness that, to my mind, I think so much contribute to the stigma and the exclusion and I think the, the added suffering of those people who, who live with mental illnesses and their families. So it, it really is to me quite, it's important. And, and one, I suppose, the association of mental illness with violence, which I think does add to the stigma. And it's unfounded. I think it's it, uh, this assumption that people with particularly living with schizophrenia are, are sort of somehow are more violent than the general population has uh, there's no evidence for it at all and, and on the contrary i think as i've tried to emphasize in this book is that people with serious mental illness are more likely to be the victims of violence so and uh, the particularly i think in the media and in the popular media there is a kind of careless damaging association of mental illness with violence too often there's this this sort of glib assumption oh it there was a violent an extremely violent act he must have been mad and certainly in film there is a constant troubling association and it angers me i suppose because it, it, it's regarded as sensational it's, it's titillating and it's false so there is no reason to associate mental illness and certainly severe mental illness like schizophrenia with, with violence or certainly with criminal behavior for that matter. And that's just the, the thing perhaps to clarify is that I'm a, 
my background is in general psychiatry. So I'm a generalist. I'm a general psychiatrist. So I simply deal with people with serious mental illnesses as opposed to a forensic psychiatrist who deals more specifically with the association of mental illness with criminality. So in other words, for example, if, if a, a very serious crime, and I've got to emphasize a serious crime, is perpetrated, then some question might arise in the preliminary hearings that this might be complicated or might be owing in some way to a serious mental illness that diminishes one's criminal responsibility. And in that circumstance, someone would refer to my colleagues at Falkenberg, but in the forensic sector, for usually what is described, period of observation, usually about 30 days, when a, a panel is required to determine whether or not this person is criminally responsible for their, their criminal act. And if the decision is then made that somebody is not criminally responsible, and if it's been a serious crime and they're regarded as being at risk, or the population being at risk to, because of this criminal behavior, then they might or might not be declared a state patient and, and stay in the forensic system of the hospital. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you. I think that clarifies the process nicely for us and explains the different roles of the different psychiatrists. Dr. Bowman, you also wanted to clarify the difference between psychiatrists and psychologists and the methods that they use, which I think is very important from an educational perspective for us to understand. I think it's important also because one of, again, misconceptions is that people with severe mental illnesses will languish in Falkenberg Hospital indefinitely. That, that doesn't occur at all. I, I'm in the general side, so the average length of stay is roughly about four to six weeks. I think, that, again, the misperception might be arise out of a confusion with the general and this forensic sector, because in other words, if somebody's declared a state patient, they would then, for, for lengthy periods of time, stay within the hospital, but allowed, very often out once things have stabilized on leave of absence. But on my side and, in, and the general side, the admissions are relatively short, roughly about four to six weeks. The other misconception that, that concerns me is this, which arose, I think, from your, your listeners' questions, was this notion of psychoanalysis. I'm a psychiatrist, which means that I'm a medical doctor, in other words, spent seven years in training as an undergraduate, and then specialized for four years in the domain of psychiatry. So that's what a psychiatrist is, as opposed to a psychologist who, a clinical psychologist who would spend three years doing an undergraduate degree and then a postgraduate, usually two, three years, to become a clinical psychologist. They're not medical doctors. And very few, and certainly in the, in, in the public sector, very few psychiatrists practice psychoanalysis. It's really more my colleagues in clinical psychology that practice psychoanalysis, and it would almost invariably be in the private sector. So in my practice, dealing again with serious mental illness, in particular schizophrenia, really psychoanalysis has little or no role at all. It's burdensome, this assumption that psychiatrists analyze people. This is nonsense. And I'm sure that you've had to deal with that misconception throughout your entire career. I thank you for sharing that. 
Whenever I interview experts in various fields, I always try and glean this type of information because I think it's so important for lay people, and I include myself in that pool, (laughs) to be properly educated about these things. The more we understand, the more we are likely to break down the stigma, I think. Exactly. And I've said this, the the motivating factor for this book is really to try and dismantle all the, the various misconceptions that contribute to stigma. Absolutely. And I can imagine how you've had to witness the negative and isolating effects of that stigma on the patients and their family. Sure. And I suppose in, in many ways, particularly the family. And I think, as I've said, I think this adds enormously to the burden of suffering. And it's unnecessary. I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think that at least in the areas of depression and anxiety, we've made some great strides in the last few decades in dispelling some of the stigma and the misconceptions around those conditions. But certainly conditions such as schizophrenia and the bipolar disorders are still not well understood by the public at all. I think that's absolutely right. Somewhere in our communications, you you raised the issue of what has possibly changed in the last decade or three. And I, I absolutely agree. I think strides have been made in diminishing the stigma and the shame associated with mental illness, but particularly in the domains of depression and anxiety. I think in particular, and and, and maybe also bipolar disorders, I think schizophrenia still remains shrouded in some kind of menacing mystery. Yes, and I could be wrong, but I think that many people still think that having schizophrenia means that the person has multiple personalities, which is, of course, not the case at all. It's absolutely, again, if, if that could be emphasized time and time again, it's absolute nonsense. And it's just the stuff of fiction, but it's extraordinary to what extent these ideas are still prevalent in the, in the community. I tend to think that perhaps that misconception arose from people with schizophrenia sometimes suffering with auditory hallucinations or so-called hearing voices. And maybe somewhere along the line in folklore, that got translated into there being a separate personality or personalities. Yeah, well, except that some incredibly popular and sensational films were made presenting schizophrenia in this way. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's very true. And I think it's so damaging and really just irresponsible. So it's really important that at any opportunity, we try to set the record straight. So that's my mission. (laughs) And that's fantastic. And that's really why I wanted to interview you and why I think this book is so important. It needs to be read by as many people as possible because it dispels those myths and also just makes one think differently about mental illness and mental health. There's a portion in the book where you pose the question, what if so-called madness is not what we think it is, but rather just a different sense of self. That really made me think differently about these issues. So what motivated you to specialize in psychiatry? I started, I started off, I did an undergraduate degree in literature and philosophy. And then, of course, got into a rather predictable panic when I finished that about what I was going to do 
decided that maybe rather romantically or naively decided I wanted to do something that might be useful in our turbulent South African society. So I started medicine and found it after that background in the arts really quite a struggle actually because it's a very different way of thinking. And I think found it very kind of determinist and mechanistic in a sense. And I felt very kind of, was very confining intellectually in a way, I suppose. Just for me, I'm talking personally. And so then, I, I, again, was after I graduated as a doctor, I did a number of, explored a number of options, I suppose, practiced in many different specialities. And then I just happened, I was in the UK at that stage, and just thought it would be interesting to consider psychiatry for six months, but just to find out whether this might be something that would be sort of different, would be less sort of restrictive, I suppose, than sort of the biomedical approach. And it was just, just immediate. I was totally fascinated. And I think it's partly because, um, because of the mysteries of, of the human mind. I think it's one of the great profound, you know, profound mysteries of, of certainly medicine and maybe even science, the nature of our consciousness and its, its derangements. So I found it, I found psychiatry just totally fascinating. So intellectually, as much as finding these maladies and particularly psychosis deeply mystifying and, and troubling and intriguing. So that's how it happened. I had no, absolutely no intention. I didn't dream when I was an undergraduate in medicine of becoming a psychiatrist. I think that is so true. I guess by studying the human mind, the possibilities of what you might discover are pretty much endless. Because although we do know so much, we also know so very little. Perhaps it's just something I do want to emphasize that I, I think sometimes, again, one of the sort of truisms or platitudes about psychiatry is that, that nobody knows what's going on. One sort of response to that is, should we be surprised? Because we understand generally that the human brain and, and mind and consciousness are the most, the human brain is the most complex entity in the known universe. I mean, it, as I, I've just said, consciousness remains one of the, the central mysteries of, of science. So should we be surprised that we, we have great difficulty in, in making sense of these phenomena when we don't really have a clear understanding of, in, in fact, how the brain works and how consciousness arises? Yes, that's very true. And it's a fascinating field of study. So why did you choose Falkenberg? Or did Falkenberg choose you? <laughs> I'm a UCT graduate, and I, I think I mentioned I finished my specialist studies in, in London in the UK, and, and it was 1992, it was the change. The apartheid system was ending, and there was a new beginning, and, and I, I was very sort of excited by that and full of hope, and decided... I needed, I wanted to come back and try and make some sort of contribution. So I wanted to work in Ketan, where I come from. And I, maybe you, you do know that Falkenberg is, a, is associated with the University of Cape Town with the Faculty of Medicine. So it's a teaching hospital. So I, I wanted to, and UCT, you know, UCT was my, my university. So I, I wanted to work in the public sector and also work in an academic context. So Falkenberg seemed the right place for me. And I think that's commendable because you surely would have had an easier time of it in private practice. And most psychiatrists are, in fact, working in the private domain. 
gosh, I don't know what the current figures are, Nicole, but I think probably the majority of psychiatrists qualifying are in the private sector. Some years ago, I, I, I think it was about 60, 40, but I, I think it's probably wrong about that. There's a, so it's a minority of the who practicing psychiatry are in the work in the public sector. I guess that's probably got a lot to do with the difficult circumstances and lack of resources that comes with working in the public sector? Yeah, certainly. There really are two different worlds. And uh, that, that might upset my private colleagues, but I, I think also in the field that I deal with, which is really the most severe forms of mental illness, there isn't provision made in the private sector. So the private hospitals aren't registered to admit involuntary patients. So in other words, the, the most extreme forms of mental illness invariably land up um, in the public sector in the units where I worked. And maybe I should also emphasize, even with bipolar disorders, it, it really had to be the most extreme, uncontrollable forms um, because the, the vast majority of people with bipolar disorders, I'm sure, managed in, in the private sector. Oh, right. Okay. That makes sense. You specialise in those conditions on the more severe end of the scale, so your patients would almost always be in the public sector. In your role, from what I gathered from your book, you would have often had the same patients moving in and out of your care, with them having been well enough to be discharged and then relapsing for whatever reason and needing to be readmitted. How did that sort of seesaw effect affect you? Let me try and just explain how it works, Nicole. So you'd be admitted to a unit such as mine, the acute admissions service. And it was a male admissions unit, so, so most of the stories involved men. So, but it's much the same on the female side. So you'd come in and be assessed and manage, a treatment plan would be sort of initiated. And then, as I've indicated, after, say, about a couple of weeks, four to six weeks, or so you out into the community to, be, to either attend a, an outpatient clinic associated with the hospital or preferably, in a way, in the community clinics. In other words, you didn't have to, to travel into the hospital, so you'd be managed at any one of these community clinics distributed through the Western Cape and be seen regularly on a monthly basis, usually by a community psychiatric nurse or maybe every three months or so by a supervising psychiatrist. That, that's the principle. But what then happens is for a host of reasons, things fall apart. And that's very often for people don't get to the clinics. It's too difficult. It's costly. They're waiting. There's a, a queue. Very often one feels that one's recovered and treatment is no longer necessary. So, so in other words, non-adherence to treatment is a, an important factor that contributes to relapse or things breaking down. But another important factor, certainly here in the Western Cape, is, is substance abuse. And, and that's really is a, a big, major problem for us. And once that happens and people start particularly, the, the two drugs that are particularly problematic are cannabis or dacha and, and tickle methamphetamines. And, and there's Two substances contributed enormously to to this relapse or you know to the breakdown of the plan and uh, requiring very often a, a readmission to the unit. So, 
Very often, yeah, I'm afraid so. There is a sort of a revolving door situation where people come in, they manage for a couple of months and back they come, get treated and out they go again, which I think is 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 burdensome for the service, but certainly, of course, for, for our patients and their families and communities. With regard to the use of illicit drugs in these patients, how does it actually affect their relapse? Is it mainly because they will then stop using their medication, or do these drugs actually make their symptoms worse? It contributes directly to, to the psychosis. There, there's a, again, that's also perhaps something that I, I just need to emphasize, uh, Nicole, is that there's a clear causal association between particularly cannabis and schizophrenia. In other words, if you, particularly if you're at a younger age, and particularly it's related to, you know, to the frequency of use and the concentration of the, the THC, but there's a, a two to three in, increase risk of developing schizophrenia following exposure to, to cannabis or dacha. So it really is, there's no doubt about it. It's not, it's not a controversial issue. It's, it's established. Okay, yes, that's a very important point to make. Because really, when people are experimenting with cannabis for the first time, in most cases, it's during their developmental years. That's very valuable information for the public to have, I think, because then one can make an informed decision. As we move into this period where the use of cannabis is going to be less restricted, I think it's important to know how it can impact certain people so that it's not used in those developmental years than that we know about the link with the developments of schizophrenia in those who might be predisposed. So you've already established for us that the risk of people with conditions like schizophrenia becoming violent is actually very low. And there's a far greater chance that these people may actually become victims themselves because they're more vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, and as you might have gathered from the book, Nicole, I think if there is violence, it's it's more much more likely to happen within families. This notion of the madman on the streets just randomly attacking is extremely rare. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm as I'm talking to, I'm trying to think of any such circumstances. If there is violence, it's very often within families rather than total strangers being involved in a, a psychotic attack. And I guess even in those cases, the violence is actually unintentional because it's very likely caused by the delusions that the person's experiencing. Yes. So in, in, to go back to what we were talking about earlier in that case, and if it's a serious assault, then those patients would be in the forensic system because they would be considered not criminally responsible for their action because they were um, acting according to their delusory beliefs. What changes have you seen in the type of patients you are seeing or the circumstances around their illness in the last 25 years? Have you noticed any type of shift, perhaps due to changes in our society? That's an interesting question. I'm really not sure. I think... I think possibly substance abuse has, is contributing more and more to, to the burden um, on the, the mental health services. And that's got, in itself, I think, is symptomatic of a whole host of changes taking place in, 
in our community, um, and, and I'm referring to the Western Cape now. I think in terms of the nature of the illness, no, there's certainly been a steady reduction in hospital beds. And with that has not come, has been necessary the increase in the provision of community services. So that's been a, a, a major problem for us providing a clinical service is that just to go back to this issue of relapse or things breaking down, there is an inadequacy of the provision of community mental health care services following a reduction in hospital beds. And, and I must perhaps emphasize that this is a global phenomenon. It's, it's something I'm sure we are all aware of that's happening throughout the world. But it's a cynical thing, and it bothers me. This is some sort of notion that by shutting down hospital beds for mental health care, that we, um, we, uh, it's a, a cost-saving exercise. Yes, and then it just exasperates costs on the other end of the scale, and the non-monetary costs as well, costs that we can't recoup. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps just to follow on from that, it, I think I've tried to describe it in this book, that it's very difficult for, it was very difficult for me and my colleagues when families would, the patients would come to us and get better and we'd, and, and there's a waiting list. I mean, waiting list of sometimes 20, 30 people waiting to get into the hospital. And we say, we've got to, we've got to discharge, you know, whoever it might be, because he's, he's stable now, he's well enough. And the family would say, but you know what's going to happen, doctor. Things are going to break down. He's going to stop taking his medication. He's going to start taking drugs. And you know what's going to happen. It's going to break down again. Why don't you keep him? And we said, we can't. We can't. We, do. we, need, to, we need the bed. And that, that, I, think, I found that certainly personally um, very difficult. And that certainly is, if I think of the last 20, 30 years, that's becoming more and more of an issue. That must be very difficult. And you would think that as awareness of the importance of mental health services grows, that these resources would be increasing. But the opposite seems to be happening. That must be really hard for you and your colleagues, because these families are looking to you for a long-term solution, but there just isn't one to be offered. At what points did you consider writing this book? Or was it something that you always knew you wanted to do? I, I think I've, for a long time, I've become increasingly sort of frustrated and exasperated by misrepresentations of madness. And, and maybe I should, we can talk about why I've used the word madness, but um, of mental illness and, and the, the degree to which that contributes to, to suffering. And I suppose I started thinking that it's really my, part of my responsibility. There's some sort of duty that I have to do what I can to to dispel some of these misconceptions. So it's, I suppose it became part of my work in a way to, um, to try and change, to rethink madness and to change these damaging misconceptions. So I'm not sure if you were, I wrote an opera, a short opera in 2017, which was part of this whole project, I suppose. It's up there on YouTube, it's called Madness, Songs of Hope and Despair. It was produced at the Baxter, presented at the Baxter. Anyway, um, so that was part of the project. Oh, no. No, I didn't realise that. Yeah, <laughs> a different way. Because I, I think, I think that, that was prompted by, by going to the theatre too many times and seeing these grotesque 
caricatures of mental illness. So I got angry, I suppose. The book in a way is quite angry, I think. So I got angry and decided I've got to do something about this. And then I was required to retire, um, I think it was about two years ago. And suddenly this seemed a useful thing to do, that at the time at last, to, to try and think clearly about what had been going on for the past 20, 30 years. And, and, but another motivating factor, apart from trying to clarify things in my own mind, was to really to do it, what I, to try and change the ways these idle assumptions, these misrepresentations, I think arising out of misconceptions about, about mental illness. So that's, that was really a major motivating factor. And now that you've written the book, do you feel like you've achieved what you wanted to? Or do you still feel like there's more work to be done? Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's so difficult in this, this lockdown, but I, I think it's probably an ongoing thing, an ongoing mission to use whatever opportunity I can to improve understanding about the, the enormously, you know, I, I, I granted it's not, it's a complex issue and it's a difficult issue, it's a troubling issue, but I think it's, it'll, you know, for as long as I, I can, I suppose, it'll be, I would be something, I would use whatever opportunity I had to, to continue with this, yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, you know you could just be using your retirement to grab a fishing rod and go fishing, right? <laughs> but instead, you've committed yourself to this immense and extremely important mission. I really commend you for that. <laughs> there were two criminal cases that you mentioned in the book which you weren't involved in, and you didn't name the perpetrators, understandably, but you did give opinions on them. Sure. They were, they were, we all know that those cases, they were big, in, big issues in, in the city at the time, or internationally. And I, I just, why I, I use those two cases, just because on, on both occasions, um, well, the one I think was to do with the other, the notion of, which I, I talk about, there's, this, there's the fear of the other. And the, the, the other issue was, uh, in order to behave like that, you, you have to be mad. Um, so it's those two issues, the assumption that extreme forms of behavior have to be on, on, are inevitably associated with mental illness. But perhaps more pertinently, this notion of the other, that, that, which I think is, again, something that contributes so much to the burden of stigma is people with serious mental illnesses are regarded as other and that's so damaging. So what Dr. Bauman is referring to here when he says the other is a concept he discusses in the book which he explains far better than I can but essentially it's the idea that I mentioned in the introduction to this interview of people who suffer from mental illness somehow being separate from the so-called rest of us. And then he ties that into one of the familicides that happened in the Cape. And he talks about how people are so extremely horrified by cases like that, because the threat has come from within. And that's very similar to how we see mental illness. One of the cases that you did mention by name was the murder of Annie Ndoka, and you shared a bit about your involvement and views on that case. 
I was able to do that because it was all in a public domain. So because I wrote a, a report, I used my patient for, uh, and I provided this report, which was published. Um, so, so, so that enabled me to talk at some level about my interaction with Mr. Dewani. Yeah. And you expressed the opinion that perhaps justice may have been thwarted in that case by an overemphasis being placed on the state of mind of the accused. Yeah, yeah, I thought, I felt, I mean, it's a strange issue. I, I felt compromised. I, I, I felt that, as a psychiatrist, I, I felt that psychiatry had sort of gotten away of things. And I, of course, it was very important for me to, make, uh, of course, a, a totally dispassionate, impartial clinical judgment. But it was it was burdensome because this man had arrived from the UK with this host of psychiatric reports, you know, informing us that he was somewhat almost severely mentally ill and we had to that if we couldn't in any significant way resolve the symptoms that he'd necessarily then return to the UK and, and that you know, I felt certainly under quite a lot of pressure but came as you know to the conclusion that I didn't think this man was suffering from any mental illness whatsoever and that he needed to be discharged from our unit so that's what happened. Are you aware of any of your patients having gone on to have committed any violent crimes? No. I said that very quickly, Nicole, but really I, I'm not aware of any... The, the, well, the, the, the one tragic um, consequence, I suppose, of, of, of having discharged somebody maybe too early is suicide. So suicide was way beyond a problem for me, way beyond any kind of homicide or serious physical assault. So, so in terms of this anxiety that we've talked about of me having to discharge people or being under pressure to discharge patients too early because of being under pressure of, of having to admit people on waiting lists. Um, I'm not aware of any severe incident following a, a discharge of one of our patients other than suicide. And that certainly is an issue that's caused me a lot of pain um, when patients have been discharged and following discharged um, in their lives. I mean, we, we do, of course, we've never discharged, we would never discharge somebody without some aftercare plan. So, so for, for the vast majority, they'd be given an appointment, say, in a month's time to attend a clinic with an explanation that there should there be any crisis, that, they, that there's an emergency number or an emergency, there'd always be a 24-hour emergency service in the Western Cape to, to deal with um, uh, unexpected deteriorations. That must be extremely difficult. And I guess even if you've cleared your patient for discharge, you can't control what happens to them when they walk out of your care, even if there is an aftercare program in place. But I can certainly understand that must be a tragic situation to find oneself in. A few weeks ago, I placed a post on the podcast's Facebook page asking what single question you would ask a psychiatrist with several decades' experience in working at Falkenberg and dealing with some interesting mental health cases. You all responded with some great questions, and I posed some of them to Dr. Bauman. So let's get into the listeners' questions. Nina Pikey asks, Are there any red flags that any victims tell you about afterwards that could warn any possible future victims of violent crime? Well, again, 
let's put aside the violent crime because that's again not my domain but certainly i mean an important question then would be warning signals of relapse of relapse you know when things break down and very often that would be in, in, in increased sort of withdrawal that somebody a loss of spontaneity that somebody who's been engaged with the family with friends and being active would slowly start to withdraw to neglect themselves to become increasingly uncommunicative that those would be some of the very common early indicators of a relapse and then things just gradually deteriorate it, it's it's usually gradual you know it's not it's not a, the, the breakdown is not something sudden and abrupt or dramatic it usually takes place over days weeks even months the implication of that would be always to intervene sooner rather than later i mean to say that that an enormous part of our work should be and is um, prevention so if if there are these warning signals you know that we should an appointment should be made at one of these community clinics or outpatient clinics to intervene sooner rather than later to prevent things from falling apart the next question i guess would apply more to the forensic psychiatry field but deirdre conradi asks what were the circumstances these criminals grew up in and did they grow up with loving parents again i'm speaking as a journalist but there is a clear association between poverty and socioeconomic deprivation and and mental illness and so what i i mean is that people who come from deprived backgrounds are at risk of developing a much higher risk than the general population of developing mental illness in situations of dire poverty of of a kind of breakdown of community and sort of social dislocation is then certainly it would be an increased risk of um, of dangerousness Paula Gruben asks how many of these patients received psychological and or psychiatric help before committing their crimes in other words had they been diagnosed and treated earlier could their crimes have been prevented I can only talk about that in my domain which is is done to that is nothing that I'm aware of but I think it's so difficult you know, to answer that question accurately I think it's not that difficult to identify serious mental illness and if there's a dangerousness and if there's violence committed that those patients go into the, the as a try to explain the forensic sector and that system really seems to be working well it's an effective system so in other words you you within the forensic system and in a very tentative way with all sorts of um, provisions being made with the necessary supervision our patients leave the hospital and go out into the communities and i'm not aware of any traumatic um event that's taken place amongst patients that have on 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 leave of absence from the hospital that probably just goes to show that the community's fear of those with mental illness as somehow relating to violence is just unfounded venetia langenhoven asks how does working with all these people affect you i suppose a great amount of frustration that i should be doing more or could be doing more 
I think that's something that we, certainly in the public sector, that all doctors and nurses and other allied health professionals struggle with. And I suppose it's just a, that, again, it's a, I suppose it's a, you know, always a professional difficulty of how do you contain stuff, not shut it out, but compartmentalise things in order not to, to become overburdened and then become so sort of incapacitated that you can't be helpful. I suppose it's a bit of a struggle, but, um, but it's important. I mean, there's no good us as professionals becoming sort of overwhelmed by the burden of things so that we can't, can't make a useful contribution. I hear the word compartmentalize a lot when I speak to people who work in fields where they're dealing with other people's trauma. Not to over compartmentalize. I mean, I think it's, it's a delicate balance. I mean, I to respond in a, as a, a person to these predicaments. I can't, you know, I don't want to don a white coat and present myself as some dispassionate expert. That's just nonsense and, and, I, and, and unhelpful. So I think it's, it's very important to respond in a humane way as a person, but not, but at the same time, not to be overwhelmed by the intimacy in a way of some of these encounters. Samantha Cooper asks, who do you download to? My guess is with the types of people you work with, you would need an outlet to download to. Who is that person? Basically, how does he process what he hears? I think it would be terribly unfair for me to unload to anybody else. I really did endeavour when I left the hospital not to, to talk about my, my work. I think it would be unfair to family and, and intimate partners, but I, I think also it was a way for me myself of coping. I think quite a few of my colleagues do have sort of a professional arrangement when they set up groups and and cope in that way by sort of just sh- sharing some of the difficulties. I've not done that, I suppose. I'm a rather private person. So. Maggie Duval asks, do you analyse strangers and or your friends and family all the time? If so, do you do it openly or secretly? <laughs> Absolutely, emphatically not. I think that would be... I think that'd be dreadful and, and, and intrusive and abusive my position. And anyway, I just didn't analyze anything. As I've tried to emphasize, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I think it's quite interesting how the minute, and I'm guilty of this too, the minute we meet someone with a certain set of professional skills, we immediately wonder if they're going to apply those skills to us. And social gatherings, people say, when it, I hesitantly say it's always awkward say, um, oh, what do you do and I say with hesitation I say, well, I'm a psychiatrist and then quite more often than not I suppose it's this this reflex response are you going to analyze me of course I know where it comes from again it's this this notion of um, the psychiatrist being the psychoanalyst me being a sort of middle-aged elderly man with a long beard sort of sitting at the end of something and you know lying on a couch prattling on about their sexual fantasies And I guess that's a testament to how powerful the media, film and books are in creating the stereotype that we have of so many different things. It does. And that's why I'm trying to to clarify things, because I think it's enormously powerful and we underestimate the, the, the media, the role of the media in shaping attitudes. Liesl Veltagen asks, 
Were you ever afraid of a person you came into contact with, knowing what they were capable of? No, I can't. I, I cannot remember a single. And I've got how many tens of thousands of people have I? No, no. I, if if they were hostile in any way, or maybe even aggressive, it it would so obviously or clearly be in the context of of their illness. I can't ever remember being afraid. And maybe I should add to that, Nicole, that, that, you know, I suppose people have these nightmare fantasies about psychiatric hospitals. I struggle to remember any kind of violent episode that took place in our unit. These, these, and the young men and, and confined spaces, I think that's quite extraordinary, really. More often or not, they were helping each other, not fighting with each other. And that's another image we're given by the media of this idea of a psychiatric facility being these cold hallways with footsteps echoing off these cavernous spaces and everyone screaming and howling. We're screaming and rattling against bars. And it's, it's offensive. Yeah, there's so many things we need to reassess about what we think about the world. Marlene Robbie asks... What is the key elements you make use of to diagnose a person with bipolar, borderline schizophrenia, very bad bipolar, and psychosis at the age of 13? Can they outgrow this? I can speak generally. I, of course, I can't speak in any specific way about this young person. All I can say is that age 13 is, is really quite young to make a diagnosis, and a diagnosis is always going to be provisional or tentative. You know, we, we can't, you don't, there's no blood test, there's no neuroimaging study that can diagnose schizophrenia or bipolar mood disorder. So it's a tentative, provisional way of trying to make sense of troubled behavior. And I would certainly be extremely cautious of making a diagnosis of schizophrenia in, in a young person, because of course, it's a turbulent time. It's, it's an adolescent time. And a lot of adolescent turmoil, as we well know, is resolved in late teens and early 20s. So, you know, I can't talk about this, of course, this specific situation. But I, I do want to emphasize that the great caution we all need to use in invoking this notion of schizophrenia, and it's always going to be tentative and provisional. The situation would then just to be to watch very carefully and to be extremely conservative in our our approach because as as we have been discussing the problems that are innate in in making a diagnosis of schizophrenia it's a burdensome diagnosis and so I think for me as a professional who's dealt with this for so many years of my clinical life um, I think it it was always for me important to to make that absolutely clear to patients and their families that it is a tentative, postulate in a sense. And we must always keep an open mind and we must always, always be hopeful. These, these, the course of these conditions is unpredictable. I mean, I, again, with all the hesitancy of not knowing any details whatsoever, but I would, even at a much later stage, I would say to patients and families would almost the language I would use would be, you know, we, we can't be absolutely sure, but this 
this might very well be something we call schizophrenia, which is this is what it means, and let's just wait and see. Treat this in whatever way necessary to prevent things from possibly developing out of control. That's what I want to emphasize. It's provisional. It's uncertain. Psychiatry is fraught with uncertainty, as is clinical medicine. But in, in that uncertainty, there's hopefulness, of course. Thank you. You wanted to touch on why you called this book Madness, which, of course, you do discuss in the book as well. And, and it's a problematic term, and it's controversial, and maybe even provocative. And I'm, I suppose why I just wanted to mention, because I, I'm deeply concerned that it might cause distress, and that it might be perceived as being derogatory. It's not at all. It really is an attempt to rethink madness, to to deal with the very issues that we've been discussing. And in our interactions with others, we don't talk about serious mental illness, we don't even talk about schizophrenia, we talk about madness. So I, I really want to deal with it head on. I want to, because we, a lot of what we've been talking about now is, is not, it's about madness, it's about the way we use this language, the cliches, the misconceptions, the misrepresentations surrounding madness. This is not an academic book. It's a, it's a, it's a book to, for as many people to read to, who might benefit from a, a rethinking or reformulation of what we sometimes very casually or idly call madness. A lot of the, the, t- the book is, is about the terminology, the, the term madness and the, the, the notions about madness. I, I can't avoid it. I can't use any kind of, it would be unhelpful for me to use any other academic term or any other euphemism or cliche. And I think that's very important. I think the word gets bandied about and perhaps not always used intentionally to be hurtful, but we don't realise the enormous spectrum of implications that are in that single word. And also, when that becomes the way you define yourself, that becomes very harmful as well. But, but that's right, and I, I want to deal with that because I think we do use the word and we use it carelessly, and it, it, it becomes interpreted as being dismissive. Oh, he's just mad. It's dismissive. So in a way, it's a, an attempt to reclaim madness, to restore some dignity to it, to this notion. Is there anything else about the book that you'd like to discuss or share about? I think I would just like to draw attention to the artwork, the illustrations, because I, I do think that's an important complement to the text. I think it's the way the images um, provide another dimension. And, and uh, it, it, to me, it's a very sort of the artwork, the illustrations are in a way integral to the whole concept of the book. I really think that this book is a major step in the right direction to starting a different conversation around mental health and mental illness. I also think that it's a topic that is important for us as followers of true crime to be really clear about, as it can be harmful for victims of crime, for us to make assumptions about the mental health of a perpetrator simply because we can't fathom their actions. Not only that, but I think the point that Dr. Bauman made about people with mental illness more often being victims of crime is extremely pertinent to our interest in true crime because it can perhaps help us to understand the vulnerability of certain victims. I would like to thank Dr. Sean Bauman for his time 
as well as Jonathan Bull Publishers, for setting up the interview. I'm always extremely honoured to be able to speak to people like Dr. Bauman, and I hope that I asked enough of the questions that you would have liked to hear about too. I really feel very strongly that this book needs to be read by as many people as possible. There is no ideal reader for this book. If you're a human being who has interactions with other human beings, you need to read this. I, for one, will be using this book as a reference in future. The book is available through Take-A-Lot, Loot, and at all good bookstores. It's called Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope, and it's written by Sean Bauman. And that's it for this week. I do hope you enjoyed this interview, and I'd love it if we could continue the conversation around mental health and its challenges on our social media channels. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow us on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.